It's 1998, and news correspondent Jim Bitterman is reporting on the famine in Sudan. 100 people a day are dying from starvation and the filth and dust because of a civil war that would eventually claim roughly 2 million lives over 22 years, one of the highest civilian death tolls of any war since World War II. Bitterman is sending daily reports about the heartbreaking situation back to NBC in the United States, but little does he know that his news stories are making their way to the State Department and will lead directly to a major change in policy that could save civilian lives. I knew I couldn't go back. Is your you just life. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Stuck even Luck deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week, I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators—people who ditch the excuses swerve off the predictable road and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. There's no point in just going out there and saying, well, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. That's, you're not doing your job. Your job is to go out there, study the issue, get as smart as you can about it, and then make a judgment. And in the end, you've got to make a judgment about where the truth is and what should be emphasized in the story and what shouldn't be. Jim Bitterman is a multi-award-winning senior international correspondent working for CNN in Paris. For the past 50 years, Jim has worked on the front lines as a journalist for all the major networks and witnessed world-changing events. The dissolution of the former Soviet Union, the Gulf War, the famine in Sudan that killed nearly 2 million people, the Middle East process, the deployment of U.S. troops in Somalia, major earthquakes, NATO airstrikes in Kosovo, the list goes on and on. I caught up with Jim between assignments and felt privileged to be able to sit down with him one-on-one and hear dramatic first-hand accounts of the news stories which have affected all of us and had a long-lasting impact, not just here in the United States, but globally. You've just flown in from your hometown, Paris. Paris, France. How's Paris today? What's the news? Well, the latest? Uh, not too much going on this day, but we've had a lot of, uh, oh. kind of news over the last few days yeah. with the Yellow Jackets. and the, uh, we, we call them Yellow Jackets. It's probably a, a better uh, translation, uh, at least for an American audience, than the real translation, which is Yellow Vest. But Yellow Jackets is what they're like bees, you know, going after you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Jim, just to give some context here of how we met, we met because you you were, were uh, helping us with Amazing Race. Yes. I believe mm-hmm. the most qualified producer we've ever had on Amazing Race. <laughs> uh, what, 49 years of experience in the business, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and then you suddenly find yourself helping us out in France with getting permits and helping us on Amazing but, Race. Going back to season one? Uh, not quite that far back, but we did go We go back to, I think, uh, season eight, I think. Season Was eight. It? Yeah. We used your office, I think, going way back to season one because your the CNN reporter mm-hmm. f- for uh, for Paris, right. and your office is in the most pristine location, it's the wonderful. most unbelievable <laughs> location. I, I don't know what I have to do if I ever have to leave. I mean, it's like it's just a joy going to work every morning. You get a great shot on the Champs Elysees when you're yes. thinking of a cameraman, but also it's just a pleasure to be there. The sun comes up just on the other side of the terrace, you know. So we see a sunrise, a great sunrise. When I'm doing my live shots in the morning, which I frequently am. Um, the uh, the sun's rising and it's just a glorious sight and 
nobody in the audience sees it, but <laughs> I do. Well, so when we see Jim Bitterman and we see you there, we're looking down the Champs-Élysées towards the Arc de Triomphe. Correct, yeah. And just an absolutely, you could not get a better location to be reporting from. Jim, you've been very busy on the Champs-Élysées recently. Recently. With the Yellow Jackets. <laughs> I had, they, they They've got been in, swarming in there. They got into a punch-up with the police right below us. We're on the sixth floor. And I had a gas mask on because there was tear gas everywhere. And I had a live shot to do. So I was just, uh, you know, had the gas mask on. You can't talk through a gas mask, as you may it's well know. It's not good for reporting, Not good for reporting. You should know this after 49 that's years. Right. You'd think, you'd think. Anyway, so at the last second, I pull a gas mask off, and then I go on the air live. Except that at that time, just at that moment, the police decided to shoot off a big volley of tear gas, and it all came wafting up. And I ended up saying, I got to throw it back to you, because <laughs> I was really choked up. Talk so, about being in the thick of it. We were right in the middle of it, right and, in the middle of it. And Jim, after 49 years, you've been in the thick of it many times. Yes, it's true. <laughs> and, and in some pretty uh, hazardous uh, places. I mean, you're six floors up away from the from what's going on in the Champs-Élysées, but you've been standing right in the middle of the news many yeah, times. It, it's true. And I mean, I think uh, one of the things that uh, when I look back, I think, well, geez, what, I, I must have been crazy to do some of that stuff. I mean, you know, I spent uh, all told about four months in Iran during the revolution and the hostage taking later on. And, uh, you know, you go out in the streets in Iran and to Tehran, and it was just unbelievable, the animosity towards Americans and uh, so it was a it was a very dangerous time. I mean, uh, got shot at it in Somalia. You know, Somalia just before the Black Hawk Down story. Um, I was there for a while for ABC, and and they, uh, you know, the we had to go out with gunmen. We had to go through. We had about twenty five of our own militia, uh, the ABC militia that was out with us all the time, so that uh, they could protect the correspondents and camera crews because it was it was very dangerous on the streets. Why is it so important to risk your life, Jim, to, well, to tell the news? I mean, well, seriously. Well, you know. I know you. I, I don't, I, you don't seem like a guy who wants to go in the line of fire, but you have. I asked myself the same question as I was lying in the dirt in Somalia. This was this was the end of it for me. Was I was lying in the dirt in Somalia, and at that point, my daughter was what? She would have been about 11, sitting back in Paris. And I was getting shot at by, it was at the Marine base. Uh, it was at, at a soccer stadium. And uh, I thought I'd be safe there doing my little stand-up and piece to camera. And, and in fact, we started taking incoming fire. So, you know, the Marines said, hit the dirt. We hit the dirt. And I, as I was laying there in the dirt, I was thinking, you know, I, I've got a daughter at home. What, what am I doing out here? And that was about it. I said after that, I sort of systematically turned down the assignments in dangerous places. Yeah. Will I be shot at? Yes or no? And then that was <laughs> yeah. the deciding factor. <laughs> it, was, it, it became a, But you know what happens, too, is that you get caught in this news media, engrenage, yeah. uh, sort of the, the, the turning of the gears in, uh, in the news business where you, you want to be part of the story. And, you know, you don't ever want to let go. And even if it gets a little dangerous or a lot dangerous, you don't, you're not even conscious sometimes of how dangerous it's becoming. So. You hear journalists say it's, it's addictive, the, the feeling of chasing that story. Yeah. To, you know, having that, catching that story before anybody else. Nothing better than having been shot at and missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you miss, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and a lot of times today you will see journalists with a bulletproof vest and, a, and the helmet and all of that. Yeah. Um, 
We now have, by the way, it's, it's gotten so dangerous for journalists that uh, unlike the early days when we were just on our own, nowadays uh, CNN, for example, has a security team that goes out and assesses the dangers and, and assesses what kind of equipment we should have or whether we should even be there. So, I mean, that they, they take that into account now. I'd say for the last 10, 15 years, they've been doing that where they, because it is, it's getting increasingly dangerous. Different assessment. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the highlights of some of the things you've, you've covered. Uh, well, you're in Paris, so anything that happens there, and there's been mm-hmm. a lot of tragedies. A lot of tragedies. You know, Ter- terrorism, that sort of Terrorism, thing, yeah. uh, Lady Di. Right, what, Lady Di. That was, t- uh, tell us the story about that. That was 1997, I believe. That was 97, and, and it happened on August, if I'm not mistaken, 31st. Uh, oh, really? Was it? Yeah, okay. it was the end of August in any case, and uh, I had just had a gigantic uh, barbecue party out at uh, my country place for all the journalists of Paris, and uh, it was a lunch, so that meant the last one left about 11 o'clock at night. And, and I presume uh, there were a few wines flowing. Well, there, there, was, there was a little bit, yes, yes, there was a little bit. And at about uh, 12.30, I got a call from the news desk uh, in Atlanta, and they said, um, they, we just want you to know that we think Dodi Fayed has been in a car crash in uh, Paris. We think that uh, Diana was in, Princess Diana was in the car, and uh, the two of them been dating recently, and I sort of vaguely remember that. So I uh, got in the car and drove off to Paris and got there. Uh, and there, around the scene, were all the same journalists who were at my barbecue <laughs> earlier on, all trying to make sense of it. We went on live coverage from about 2 to 4 o'clock in the morning. And then 4 o'clock, we heard that she had died. Which tunnel was it, by the way? Where it's we- the Pont de Alma is the, the, uh, the, the site of it, where, where uh, it's a tunnel, just a tunnel underneath this square, uh, the, the Place Alma, uh, oh. which is right on the Seine. And there's a, there's a uh, Herald Tribune about two or three years earlier had installed this flame from the Statue of Liberty to mark the, the anniversary of the Statue of Liberty or something. In any case, that flame, because of the crash happening there, became the Princess Diana flame. And in fact, it was not that at all, but that's where the tourists go to this day. I mean, you still see uh, crowds of tourists leaving flowers, leaving mementos, that sort of thing. You've worked pretty, for pretty much all the net, major networks, right? Have you worked for yeah, ABC? I just can't hold a job, Phil. <laughs> well, you're a survivor. That's what you yeah, are. Yeah, right. You're still out there, yeah. pretty yeah. much still in the trenches, Jim, yeah. let's be honest, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, tell us about your days at ABC, because back in the day with the networks, we've spoken to Susan Zarinsky about this. Mm-hmm. The resources and news were very different. Uh, oh. They poured a lot of money into news. That was a big thing for them, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Both the NBC and ABC, both, they really poured a lot of money into it. One of the things that happened was a very interesting phenomenon in the early 80s was that uh, video came in. We'd been shooting on film up to then. And, you know, when you went into film editing, you'd get the film scratched and things didn't look quite right and all the rest. Video just brought home uh, the way the world looked in a different way. And I can remember pitching stories that probably would not get on the air at all today, uh, you know, in places like uh, Cairo. Go see the pyramids and see what they really look like and, you know, figure out some editorial line around it. But really, the whole point with the mission was to show some glamorous pictures and glorious pictures of uh, of the pyramids and the Sphinx and that sort of thing. It was, it was like opening up the world through video. Uh, and that changed the assignment editor's sort of mentality about things. Uh, they could justify things in a whole different way. And later on, when the news uh, when, when news started happening, and you had things like uh, the famines in 
Africa and things like that. It was so very graphic when you saw thing, what was really happening to people on the ground. And the, the turnaround too, Jim, because I, I, I've been around long enough too to also remember the days of film hmm. at the end in New Zealand right. and shooting with CP-16s and shooting old reversal film. Hmm. There was always that delay. You'd go shoot something, the film had to go into processing, mm -hmm. Then it had to go out of processing, and then they would get cut, and then transferred to tape, and then it would go to air. But this this videotape transition, this completely changed the way you guys told news or the immediacy of news. Of course, there was live TV, hmm. but now you could turn around a story and much faster. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I can remember. I mean, for example, when we were in Beirut, um, and I'd go in and fill in for the during the Civil War, fill in for the Beirut correspondent occasionally, and. The rule was that all news stopped at noon because there was a TWA flight to Rome at one o'clock, and you had to get your That's film crazy. onto the flight. Otherwise, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't get on the news that night. So, um, so that was, you know, our cutoff point was noon. Then we had the rest of the even if it off. was the biggest story. <laughs> if you missed the flight, then yeah, yeah. Well, they had there was a one backup arrangement. You could drive, which was a little risky, drive the film over to Damascus. Uh, over the mountains and and that was could be risky so you know you didn't want to do that every day but if you had something really big you could do that so. which which is another point of conversation which we'll get into with just the accessibility of news but um, so you you saw the the end of uh, the Soviet Union right right um, what was that 89 uh, 89 but what what was for me the biggest adventure and we'd been I'd been going back and forth in Moscow filling in we did a lot of that sort of filling backfilling the correspondent position if the correspondent needed a vacation or whatever Usually in Moscow, it was the middle of the winter. You know, the reporter wanted out. Of course. <laughs> yeah, right. So guess who you, went yeah, in? Yeah, I guess you got yeah, to go there. Yeah. Oh, but, great. I get to go to Russia in the middle of winter. Yeah. But the wall, when the wall came down, I was in Germany. I was covering the uh, the, the um, Bundestag in the Bonn. Um, and in Bonn, because that was the capital at that point for West Germany. And um, they made the announcement on the floor and then immediately went to uh, Berlin after that to cover the events around the wall for the next few, few days after that. But they gave me uh, uh, the equivalent of, it was a Yak, Yak 30 or something, it was a, a, like a Learjet, and a team, a camera team and our editor, producer, and we went through the Soviet republics in the south of Soviet Union, one by one, just to see what was going on. And flying, was, flying east. Right, right. Yep, ended in Kazakhstan. Didn't, did that make you a little nervous? <laughs> yeah, yeah, going right. further away from the west. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> deeper no, and it deeper. Was, it was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty uh, subdued at that point. In fact, I tell you, it, it was just fascinating what was going on, and and the mission was. Totally undefined. This was kind of Peter Jennings' idea. You could do whatever you wanted. Whatever, you know, just land, what take was the test button. So what, what was the biggest thing that you remember about that? What was the, the, the biggest takeaway from that trip? Well, the, I mean, the, the, for me, the most interesting stop was in Kiev, where uh, the Soviets had a uh, uh, training school for political officers. Uh, and during the communist era, the political officers basically uh, were sent out on all the ships and various postings around the world so that, they, uh, that the local generals and whatnot, colonels and whatever, followed the communist the line. So there was always two leaders. You always had the, the military leader, but then you also had this, this, uh, uh, this guy who was in charge of uh, making sure pure communism was being respected. In any case, this school was out of business because communism no longer existed. 
And so here was this group of officers who'd been, you know, a lot of them, you know, the students, the cadets and stuff were, were uh, you know, being trained up for jobs that didn't exist. And basically the whole campus, it wasn't it was a military training center, but in any case, the place was uh, up for grabs. People were wandering around, drinking all day long, and, you know, just, it, it was a, it really, a, it showed the face of what the transition was going to be like for the next couple of years until they kind of got their act together after that. But uh. How difficult has it been for you over the years? You mentioned your daughter, but I'm just interested in how it's affected you as a person where you're seeing human existence in, in its extreme. And I'm just wondering how that's impacted you. Well, I mean, you see a lot of things that uh, stick with you for a long time. Um, you had the southern part of Sudan, um, where, which was um, basically uh, Christian, and the north, which was Muslim. And uh, the north had all the food they needed, and the south uh, did not, because the Muslims were, being, were denying, the Muslim government was denying uh, the Christians in the South, uh, food. We went into one camp where the children were dying at uh, 100 a day. Um, uh, and it, you could literally film people dying, take images of, of people dying in front of the camera. I mean, it was, it was just tragic. And the, uh, all, there were some foreign caregivers in there, like uh, the group care was there, and there were other people uh, uh, trying to do their best to help people out. but. Uh, th there was little they could do because the warehouses were controlled by the government. And the government didn't want the Southerners getting any food. That was a really sad, sad time. And uh, when when people were, it was it also it showed me how awful people could be because uh, it was basically a civil war being fought with food. How hard is that as a journalist, where you're trying to tell the story, but at the same time, as a human being, you're thinking I should be helping these people like right next to you someone's yeah. dying but you're reporting the story that's the that's the argument that you're constantly faced with i mean we we brought in our own food supplies and the question was share as much as you can i mean we, that's yeah. what we did but but then there there's a bigger issue is it more important to get the story out and you know make sure that people understand what's happening so yeah it's a it's a contradiction i think journalists live with a lot sometimes but it's not something I've ever gravitated towards. I, I, I just find it too difficult to, to do a lot of news stories. Yeah. Uh, but you have, to have, you have to be a particular type of person, don't you, to have that, the ability to be able to stand there and tell that story. But it is so important that the stories get out. Exactly. So I do I, admire people like you who you know, been well, able to do that. You know, I, I think that one of the things is that uh, you do develop this kind of callousness. Well, you which, have to, don't you? To yeah, survive? I think I think you do. It's a it's a it's a mindset. You know, I, the uh, and I mentioned earlier Iran, but the um, uh, one of the things that I came away from Iran with was this unbelievable sort of uh, uh, phobia about being in crowds. Mm. Uh, it didn't last too long, about two or three years, but I can remember afterwards that because I was in the crowds all the time shouting hatred right at my face and I and I could see what those crowds could do um, uh, including tear people apart literally um, and saw that once or twice uh, that I God, it, it, must I, be I it was terrifying I mean the police chief of Tehran who suffered that uh, in the streets of Tehran during the, during the revolution pieces, right? just ripped to pieces 
And the, uh, as a consequence, uh, you know, for a couple of years afterwards, I really got nervous in crowd scenes, and I tried to avoid them if I could. But I was in a crowd scene in the Vatican, and it couldn't have been a more passive. <laughs> it was like a lot of nuns. And, <laughs> and I was going to, whoa, why am I getting edgy why here? It stays edgy? in, stays in. You know, yeah. so, no. Are there stories that you really gravitate towards, the ones that you really, where you feel, wow, this is where I really love your job, or is it more about how good the story is? Well, it's a combination of things. I think, you know, one of the things that always happen, you always feel like you've got a story that clicks. You know, there's something about it. Uh, You've got the right cameraman, you've got the right editor, you've got the right producer, everybody, and they they give you the right amount of freedom, that sort of thing, that that, uh, you you get something that you know works. I just, the other day, I did a thing, I felt that way, was we did a thing on this this, uh, 17th century painting that was found behind a wall in Paris. Yes, yes, this is such a fascinating story. a weird story. Yeah, really. And not only that, it's right down the street from our office. It was just like a hundred so yards convenient. away. Which yeah. <laughs> so convenient. Yeah. It's so convenient. But no, I, I heard about it. Actually, it was the New York Times that discovered it. And and basically, Oscar, Oscar de la Renta is re, redoing a boutique in Paris. And uh, as they're tearing down the walls and reconstructing the inside of it, they tore down one wall and they discovered this 17th century tableau um, which was one of uh, Louis the ambassadors visiting Jerusalem, and it was like, totally bizarre. And uh, the tableau had been uh, painting. It was a painting on canvas that had been glued to the wall. Why, why somebody glued it to the walls? Unknown. It's huge. It's probably I don't know, ten by twenty feet or something like that. And um, and but what was more astounding is the building was from the 19th century. So you have the 17th century painting that was glued to the wall uh, somewhere in the 19th century because that was when the building was built. Uh, and for what reason, no one understands. And what's more important was that the, the, the wall that covered it up was spaced away from the painting of, by about six or eight inches. Almost intentionally. Like intentionally, it, like, it, like if somebody had wanted to preserve the painting. And we don't know why. We don't know why. And I mean, there's a suggestion, well, maybe it was World War II, and there was some thought about maybe the Nazis seizing it or something, or maybe it was just, I, whatever reason, it's, uh, it's pretty pretty un- unusual that such a thing would happen. And, and so we went over there and did our little story. And so, well, what's the latest? What, what, are you still following <laughs> We're the still story? Still following the story? Yeah, I don't know where it's going. I mean, I don't know if they've gotten any further along. But, uh, but now, of course, uh, the De La Renta people, being in the fashion business and being uh, attuned to the kind of elegance and style and art and culture, said we're going to make this a big part of our showroom. So now they have redone their entire renovation project so that uh, this painting will be at the center of their of their boutique. I was reading that you're having to also play as a journalist by different rules because in in America we have the ability or journalists have the ability to be able to dig into a story mm-hmm. because of the what is it the information act freedom of information act yeah right so uh, in in Paris you can't just rock up and go look for records of go investigating like you would here no that's that is a, a real problem and and people we often get uh, requests from uh, Atlanta saying you know can you find out a little more can we see the police report well we we have no right in France to view uh, the police reports. That's that's not a matter of public record. Uh, in, in the Diana case, for example, uh, that w- that was uh, there were breaks coming all the time of what the prosecutor was looking at, uh, and they were coming from inside the courthouse, inside the the, the Palais de Justice. The prosecutor would leak things to the to his favorite reporters, 
And uh, sometimes it was after hours. Well, we, as outsiders, we couldn't, our, our badges to get into the Pelley Justice exp- uh, were, were, were only good up until 6 o'clock at night. After that, we had to leave the building. But the permanently attributed reporters could stay there all night if they wanted to. And so they would, you know, get the That's prosecutor not fair, <laughs> That's not together with a glass of wine at about yeah. nine o'clock at night, and they would get some information that we couldn't. So we ended up hiring one of these guys. CNN hired one of these guys on a temporary basis to sort of work for us. And uh, whatever you got to do to get the story, right. exactly. Yeah. exactly. Did you find out the hard way when you first got to Europe about some of those rules where you could have sort of ran into some brick walls? Well, one thing that uh, is very strict in France and has gotten stricter over the years is the privacy, the right to privacy. And you can't just take a picture of people on the street uh, randomly. Um, you frequently see on French television, for example, the digital blurring of faces and whatnot of people, say, in a, in a metro car, in a, in a subway car, or something like that, people that are not involved in the story. Um, and because they could come back and sue you for invasion of privacy. They have, their feeling is that a person has a right to own their image. Fair and, enough. And that seems fair enough to me, too. And, uh, but that, uh, that means, of course, then you've got to get releases from everybody. If you've seen in The Amazing Race. Yes. <laughs> it's you have a, to get releases a, from everybody. Yeah, so. I, I'm not sure if everybody realizes just how challenging that can be sometimes oh, when well. you're shooting television and people inadvertently end up in the image. Yeah, absolutely. When when teams stop to talk to somebody and, you know, you've got to get that permission. Yeah. Um, You know, there was was this book that you co-authored in 1998, Mm -hmm. and I I think it's it's so pertinent to read a little something from it because it was called Live from the Trenches, right? The the, Mm -hmm. uh, changing role of television news of the news correspondent. And Ted Koppel wrote a foreword for the Mm -hmm. for the book. Yeah. And this is only 20 years ago. And he said, uh, we are on the verge of moving into an age of fiber optics. Uh, Once introduced into people's homes, it will be a simple matter of sending video images over the phone. Uh, Anyone with a high eight camera and a laptop will have the technology and the wherewithal to become a television network. Uh, And he he goes on to say, what does it take to be a reporter in America? Nothing. In such an environment, one would hope that Americans would turn in droves to the established journalists like yourself, Jim, <laughs> whose identities uh, and background and credentials, et cetera, et cetera you know. Mm-hmm. Now, it would be a very different forward today in 2019, <laughs> wouldn't it? Boy, has the news changed. I mean, you Absolutely. talk about you starting almost 50. When do you celebrate 50 years, by I, the way? Well, I, I celebrated in, uh, I started in 65 at the local news. Oh, so you were already passed it. Uh, yes, 2015 is when I celebrated the 50 years. In. Wow, so you're <laughs> over half a century yeah, right. of news story is, is that, telling. I'm just old. I mean, that does, that's not a great accomplishment. Good? Do they good? have good plastic surgeons said, in Paris? Yeah, right. <laughs> A guy who's still chasing your hair—that's the important. Yeah, no, I've got to work on that. That's that's wonderful that you've been chasing stories that long. So, look, everybody is talking right now about fake news, and Mm. there are so many outlets for news. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's as if everybody wants to tell a story, and the the number of people telling stories, and the number of stories that are 
Well, let's be honest, some of them are fake or not well-researched mm -hmm. or not founded or on, on any strong basis. What What is going on right now, and will we ever be able to trust the news? Well, that's a good question, and I think, you know, CNN, CNN New York Times, and other people battle that every single day because they get accused of uh, fake news by the president. But the, um, you know, I think it's, it, there's a number of things that have changed over the years, and one, one thing that uh, I started seeing in the um, sort of, uh, late 90s, early 2000, uh, was that when you were out in the field in the early days, you didn't have to um, worry about anybody actually seeing what your story looked like. So, you know, you could go to a, a group, a militia group, and say, listen, I'm telling your story this way, I'm representing your interests. And they say, oh, yeah, go ahead, you know, we'll let you film. Uh, nowadays, of course, they can check everything on the internet and you say wait a second you said you're telling our story and yet and you've you, skewed it that and way. skewed it the other way so uh you started running into the situations and i think it's become much more dangerous for foreign correspondents in the field now because of this aspect that people can see what they do it didn't happen in my day when i was really running around a lot in dangerous places but it does today and you can you can see journalists increasingly being targeted because of that that uh, that the adversary of whoever it is of the day uh, can see what what your output is so that makes it dangerous but yeah and then I think it's the number of people out there with different um, points of view as everybody's got a camera in their pocket and uh, that uh, we saw when we had that issue about uh, the young people from the high school the Catholic high school in DC and they got right. and for the, the story came out one way at the beginning and it turned around within Into. a few days another way and then it's turned around and after that I think but it you know it it just depends on your point of view so it's it's a much more complicated process these days i think in terms of making sure that the the news is accurate and and truthful to what the story is we we have you know every time that we do a prepared report and sometimes even the unprepared reports go through uh, a, a desk in the atlanta newsroom where they have about uh, seven or eight people around sitting around and they review what has been said and trying to decide whether it's accurate or whether there needs to be disclaimers disclaimers or or change in any way so. yeah and the the accuracy is so important now but then if someone questions it which they can because they have the platform then it can call into question something that is strongly founded on fact or based on fact so it must be very frustrating when you know you've got it right and then you're still accused of being yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, you have to be so careful. You have to be so careful. And I, I, you know, if I'm ever worried about a fact or anything, I immediately will call someone to sort of check it out, make sure I've got it right, I got the story right, I heard it right, and, you know, that sort of thing. Consult transcripts in a way that, that I mean, we weren't, you know, uh, insensitive to that in the past, but I think today you have to be far more accurate than you used to have to be. You think about, we were talking to Susan Zarensky, and, and she was talking about Walter Cronkite, who was the basically the voice of the people. She doesn't think we'll ever have that again. And the question is, there's just so many voices. Mm -hmm. And would, do you think it would be fair to say that people are tuning in to what they want to hear rather than what they necessarily should be hearing? Unfortunately, it's the case. I think that I say unfortunately because uh, there's two ways of looking at it. even this. Because yes. The whole question is that you can look at it and say, well, people should have uh, their own choice of where they are listening and have a different voice out there. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, back in the 80s, uh, when I was running around for NBC, at one point, uh, I think around 88 or so, 
um, there were um, uh, the networks were being run by uh, Larry Grossman at NBC, who was a network news chief, um, and um, Rune Arledge at ABC. And there was a guy named, uh, I want to say Richard, at Wald, in any case, at the New York Times. And all three of these news chieftains had been roommates at Columbia. So you had a kind of commonality about what news was supposed to be, what history was, you know, what was important and what wasn't. Uh, even if it was an unconscious commonality, it was still their white male it judgment. It was their about filter. It. it was their filter. And, and so, you know, you did have a sort of com a much more common ground for America. 80, something like 82 or 88 percent of, of American homes had a television set on in 1987 or so, we're listening to, at 6.30 at night, we're listening to one of, of those, those voices. Three, net, three, three network voices. And, and so, as a consequence, you know, there was much more common viewpoint out there. Now, who knows what people are listening to, everything under the sun, so. So what do you say to people who want the facts, who want the news, where do they go? Because there is a, a, a political skew to so many of the news voices today. So what do you do? I mean, I, me, I personally, what I do is I flick around and I, I go to different sources to hear the same story. Mm -hmm. But I have to tell you, it, sometimes it's like I don't know where the truth is yeah. or I, I don't know what to believe. Well, Because even just the turn of phrase, right? You know this. It, mm -hmm. you, you can, it, I always thought you know, the role of a journalist was to be impartial and to, to just throw out the facts. But it seems... Even if you take someone like Sean Hannity, he says he's not a journalist. He says he's an entertainer, but he is giving information right. that people believe as news. So, what you, do we do, Jim? You're, uh, yeah. you're the guy with <laughs> you're, right. you're the guy oh. with fifty plus years experience. Tell <laughs> tell us what to do. Well, this is something that I really hate to wade into because I really don't have a solution for yeah. it. I mean, I think you you it it demands the public to be much more educated and much more sophisticated about the way they make their 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 information choices. I mean, you know, you can't just listen to just anybody. And Facebook feed is not a real reliable source. It's only as reliable as some of your friends are on Facebook. So you don't necessarily want to depend on those folks for uh, for your sources of news but uh, on the other hand sometimes it can start a wave and it'll be something a, a, a kind of totally false story will become very real in the sense that a lot of people begin to believe it so uh, I don't I think you have to choose your sources and I think one of the, the things that we still have thank goodness are uh, newspapers like the New York Times and Washington Post uh, that are still doing a very solid job uh, national public radio and and uh, the networks I think are still trying to do a very positive job it's interesting to me because we had I've started watching Fox recently I, I won't tell my boss that but uh, but it, it is interesting to sort of see the whole the way this all is taking place in the United States because remember we're overseas and we're not I have no idea what's happening back home but I um, uh, we recently got uh, Fox on our cable networks over there so I take a look every once in a while and they have some people some some voices on Fox that sound very similar to what we have on CNN uh, um, Shepard Smith for example and people like that that uh, I think are doing a pretty legitimate job and un biased job of of uh, presenting the news um the uh shepherd smith in particular has has called out 
other journalists on his own network yes, exactly. for for skewing the truth. Right. Um, and and at the end of the day, surely that's the role of a journalist is is to not put their own political beliefs into the exactly. storytelling. Yeah. And do you find yeah. it hard sometimes? To do that? Well, you know, I, what I tell my students, because I, I teach them it, and, and, you know, they're always saying, well, how can we be unbiased? And I say, well, you know, you're, everybody grows up with biases. You know, you're not going to have, you can't possibly be. It's your, be part a, of your makeup. But, I, you know, I'd say there's also no point in just going out there and saying, well, on the one hand this, and the one hand, on the other hand that. That's, you're not doing your job. Your mm -hmm. job is to go out there, study the issue, get as smart as you can about it, and then make a judgment. And in the end, you've got to make a judgment about where the truth is and what should be emphasized in the story and what shouldn't be. Uh, but your job is to do that because the audience, you, if you just tell them one hand this and the other hand that, they're no better off than you are when you first start off in your story. So and you do need biases. To, So you do need to come in with a point of view. Well, you have to come in with a, at least at a point of view to the extent that you uh, evaluate the various sources that are telling you things and uh, decide which should be presented in the most uh, positive or most uh, uh, visible way. Understand you have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you've got to, you know, have a good I was going to ask you that, Jim. Tell us how to tell a better story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're right. the key ingredients yeah, yeah, that we could all be thinking about when we're telling a good story at a pub to friends yeah. or whatever. What are yeah. the key ingredients to a good well, story? Well, one thing is knowing your audience. You have to know, you have to use, the, use their, their vocabulary, and their, you have to be interesting all the time. You have to be concise. Don't make it long. Keep it short. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's just a number of things that you you can do that will at least make your storytelling better. Because we've all sat through stories. We've all sat around with listening to somebody say, "God, I wish this yeah, guy would get, get to the point. Ended. Where is it, where is this going?" <laughs> or someone tells a very very long story and then there's no real payoff. Right. So like, <laughs> say, what, seriously, what are, what I just we, wasted we, all this exactly, time and there's no we, payoff to this story. Exactly. One of the, the, the great things about covering stories is that can have a real impact on the world, you know, bigger than the story. Mm -hmm. And you covered one story that actually changed policy. Exactly. That was the uh, in Sudan. And, it, and you know, uh, it, it is one of the things that journalists really, I think, secretly strive for. They probably don't say it too much outwardly, but the idea that you can have an impact, you can affect things. Uh, you want your story to be heard, but also to be acted upon in some cases. And this is one of those cases. I mean, we were seeing such tragedy in the Sudan with the, the, the famine that was going on and everything. And uh, I later found out that the, uh, you know, in the State Department, they showed the story around. Uh, and uh, people within the State Department said, well, wait a minute, we, maybe we should change our policy in, and in terms of how we're supporting the Sudan. And, and thereafter, uh, they did. Uh, things changed uh, as far as the Sudanese were concerned in terms of getting food supplies and that, that, that sort of thing. And that was, I think, you know, that's very gratifying. I think that's, that's really the biggest payoff. Uh, to, to being a journalist and, 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 and to getting things uh, right. That's uh, got to be very satisfying. You dig into a story yeah. and you're able to affect change. And that's, and that's the justification for being in some of these locations, I think, where you, you, know, you may be a little bit at risk, but uh, the people are much more at risk than you are. Jim, I really appreciate you taking some time out to, to, to talk to us. Uh, I, I end the, our conversation with a couple of questions. Um, first one being, if you could take a, a road trip, uh, a long road trip in a car, and you could take three people with you from any time in history, mm -hmm. uh, alive or dead, uh, who would you take in the car? Three companions. 
Uh huh. Well, I think uh, I, one of the people I'd take would be uh, my late wife because uh, I worked with her for thirty years, uh, and and um, she would always stop me when I was saying something or doing something stupid. Uh, which she was, was your best editor, <laughs> exactly, best editor. Um, and um, uh, I think I'd take some. It would be great to travel some humorist. I don't know who uh, Seinfeld or. Uh, Colbert or somebody like that. John <laughs> Stewart, maybe. Yeah. yeah, John Stewart, right. Uh, and then, of course, my daughter, just because she's the future, or maybe my granddaughter, maybe that would be it. The granddaughter, because she's starting out very cute. So that sounds like a fun trip. Yeah, it would be great. Would and be then, great. Jim, your, your, your final day on Earth, if you, were, if you could plan it, mm-hmm. what would you want to do with it? Well, you know, I think I wouldn't change much, I don't think. I think I would uh, run it just about the way that I run every day, which is to get up and try to figure out what's going on in the world and uh, how I can engage in that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, it wouldn't want to do anything that would leave me regretful of not having done something. You know, yeah. that's, but that's always been my biggest, uh, biggest regret is not, is, is not having done the things I wanted to do. And, and uh, so I think, you know, I'd pretty much run it like any other day. And then hope, hopefully the end would be quick, you know, get run over by a bus or something. And, and peaceful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Jim, can you give us your sign-off? Like we're, we're in Paris <laughs> and you're, you're, up, uh, you're up on the balcony and you're going to give us your sign-off at a Jim Bitterman CNN <laughs> in Paris. Like, uh, let's get that because that would be a great way to end this. <laughs> okay. Jim Bitterman, CNN, New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us and follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an I-T, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter at Phil Kogan. See you soon.